Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. Found this picture on the internet of a fish riding a bicycle. I don't know what that makes. I don't know what that makes you think of, but be careful where you laugh. This comes from a quote from Irina Dunn from 1970, a feminist. She said, a man, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Now be careful where you chuckle here. Be careful where you chuckle here. Not too many years after that, uh, Bobby Riggs uh, challenged uh, Billie Jean King to a tennis match. And Bobby Riggs says this, and he, he puts this picture up. A woman's place is in the bedroom and in the kitchen and in that order. How come nobody laughed at that one? Oh, not funny. See, why is it funny that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle? We don't get offended at that. We laugh. But if you say a woman's place is in the kitchen, that gets offensive. See, today, what we're going to do, both, both, by the way, both expressions and both quotes are severely wrong and warped. But the reason why we laugh at one and get offended at another is because of the culture we live in. We should be offended by both. The scripture tells us, the scripture tells us and lays out clear gender roles and what we're supposed to believe as men and women, and that's what we're gonna look at today, and God help me please. Lord, we come to you today and we just ask that you would open up our eyes and ears to what you're going to tell us in scripture. And then Lord, develop that within us to have a love for your word, even if we are offended by it or even if we agree with it, help us have a love for your word and then obey you, trusting you completely. God, we ask for your help and I especially ask for your help in teaching a sensitive topic. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. There probably is, uh, there, there are sensitive uh, topics in our culture today, and what we did uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, is we began asking on Facebook and social media, and we sent an email out to your uh, small group leaders, so if they didn't ask you, that's on them, uh, but we said, what are some topics you'd like us to have discussed? And one of the topics that kept coming up, one of the topics that kept reoccurring is what are the gender roles, what does the Bible say about gender roles, or an expression of that, what does the scripture say about women in ministry? We're going to look at that a little bit today. And there are uh, several verses that discuss it, discuss these questions in the Bible, and there are, um, I don't know, three or four verses that I, I found 400 books written about three or four verses in Scripture. And so I read all of those books. No, I didn't read all those books. But there, there are some, uh, if we take Scripture in context, I think we can figure some things out. I want to read a passage of Scripture uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And there's going to be a line in this passage that you are, it's just going to, it's going to set you back. And you listen for it. When you hear it, you'll hear it and you'll be like, that's the line he was talking about. Listen to this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 through 39. This is Paul's words to the church at Corinth. This is in the Bible. This is inspired by God. And it is in every single text from, a, from as, as many texts as we can go back into. This belongs in the scripture. Nobody, no scholar doubts that this belongs here. Here's what it says. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. 
but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God... Oh, did somebody get blown away by that? It's in here. It's here. You, found the, you found the verse I was talking about. Verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, there was a line in there that uh, I think some of you, uh, especially Church of Christ, were pretty offended by. And it was, it was this, uh, do not forbid speaking in tongues. No, that's not what we're talking about today. That was a joke. That was a joke. Why does, why does this verse, first of all, let me just ask, why does this verse, women should remain silent churches, verse 34, why is that offensive to us? I want to I give you a couple of reasons. I want to give you a couple of reasons. Number one, I think this is offensive and weird to us because of the culture we live in, number one. And I, I want to give some evidence for this. In modern Western culture, when modern Western culture, not Christians, but non-Christians, when they hear Jesus say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When modern Western culture hears that, they say, how dare someone say there is only one true religion, only one way to heaven? But if you go to the Middle East right now, and you say, how dare anyone say there is only one true religion? In the Middle East, they'll ask you, why not? See, culturally, in the Middle East, there is one true religion. It's not Christianity, but they believe in one true religion. But you get in modern Western culture, you get in America and and Europe and and Australia, modern Western first world uh, country, We can't stand it, oftentimes, that someone would dare say there's one true religion. Well, why is that? Well, it's a cultural thing. It's how we've been brought up to question everything, to have no authority. We can make our own way. But in the Middle East, it's not like that. It depends on what culture you're in. Let me give you another example. In Matthew chapter uh, 26, verses 34 through 46, Jesus is in the garden getting ready to be crucified, He's already had the Last Supper with his disciples. He leads them out and he says, will you come and pray with me? And he says something astonishing, but it's it's not astonishing to our ears. He says, the scripture says, he was grieved and deeply troubled in his spirit. He was shocked to be experiencing what he was experiencing. And when modern Western culture reads that Jesus was weeping and crying and really struggling in agony, modern Western culture says, Man, we can really relate to that. I have a Savior that reveal, is vulnerable in his weakness. But if you go back 2,000 years, the Roman culture did not, the Greek and Roman culture did not appreciate men being vulnerable as they prepared for, to face a conflict. That was a stumbling block. Stumbling block for the Jews and, and, and uh, extreme Uh, anti-wisdom for the Greeks. For the Jewish person, they would say, how in the world could God be man? That's offensive. God would never be shocked by anything and God would never weep in agony. Culturally, Jesus weeping in the garden is offensive to the Romans and the Jews of Jesus' day. And which makes us question, why was it put in the scripture if it was so offensive to the people they were trying to save? Well, the answer is because it really happened that way. And they wrote how it happened. But in modern Western culture, we like that about our Savior. I think when we hear stuff about women and men roles in Scripture, I think because we're in the culture we live in, it affects how we feel about a passage of Scripture. But how we feel about a passage of Scripture doesn't really reveal whether it is true, whether it's right, and whether it can be trusted or not. Let me give you one more example from uh, Roman times. Roman times, uh, let me read this quote, uh, try to read it exactly. This was the law about um, rape in Roman times. 
A husband could force himself on his wife without breaking any law. Additionally, there were groups of women, including slaves, prostitutes, and foreigners, on whom rape could not be committed due to their social status. That's offensive, right? That was the culture they lived in. Just because something is offensive or not offensive in culture doesn't tell us whether it is right, true, or trustworthy. I gave you three examples. Now, when we hear this verse again, verse 34, women should remain silent in churches, it may be it is so offensive because of the culture we live in. Maybe there's more reasons to it than that. But anytime we encounter something in Scripture that offends us, but doesn't offend somebody else due to our culture, or vice versa, something in the Scripture offends somebody else's culture, but we're totally fine with it, that actually might be an indicator that it is not from us, but it's from God. See, if, it's real, if Scripture is really true from God, it will offend people in certain cultures at certain times in history and not offend others, and vice versa. I think that proves that Scripture is from God and is not based on our culture. And this happens, uh, it happens more than just talking about roles of women and roles of men. Okay, it happens... If, if you get offended by Scripture, I think that just proves Scripture is true, and it's from God. So the number one, why you might be offended by that verse, women should be, remain silent in churches, is I think it's culture, we live in this culture. Number two, when you hear phrases or terms in Scripture that you get offended by, recognize what culture you're living in, how much culture is influencing you. Number two, turn to God and see if what he has revealed about himself can be trusted. And what he reveals about his relationship with you and me can be trusted. Let me give you an example here. How valuable are you to God? God finds you so valuable that he knows every hair on your head. The scripture says that we have our breath and our bodies based on the upholding of Jesus, in the, upholding the universe and the laws of nature. God finds you so valuable and he loves you so much that he sent his son to be a sacrificial death in your place. If God the Father is willing to send his son to die for you, what else wouldn't he give you? There is nothing that that is, that is as great or as significant as that. If he's willing to give you his son to die in your place, how trustworthy and loving is he? I think God has earned the right to say things that we might not agree with because he's proven that he loves us and he is trustworthy. Now, you may not agree with that, but I completely trust my Savior, Jesus. I completely trust that he sent his Holy Spirit to inspire the words of Scripture to be written to the people it was written to and to educate us 2,000 years later. So when I come across something that is offensive to me in Scripture, women should remain silent, or I have questions about, and there are other phrases. Submission is one of those phrases. The term headship is one of those phrases. That is offensive to us culturally, but God is trustworthy. We following along? We tracking? You still want to know what the interpretation is, though, right? One, one more caveat, one more caveat. Um, this discussion and what is trending, this question, you asked for it, we're going to talk about it. Uh, it is not essential for salvation whether you agree with my teaching on this or not. Okay? So there are things that we need to teach that are essential for salvation. It is essential that you trust and entrust yourself by faith to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross for you to be saved. That is one essential note. What you believe about the role of men and women in, in the church and in the home, it's not essential for your salvation. 
Okay, so there's like essential for salvation, and then there's essential for historic Christian orthodoxy, then there's essential for traditional orthodoxy. You can just go down the list. And I think when we start talking about the roles of men and women, it is a secondary, um, third, tertiary, I don't know what fourth is. Um, I I think it's important, but it's not essential. And it is essential for historical orthodoxy. It is essential for denominational orthodoxy. But it is not essential for salvation. What that means is, if you don't agree with what we say about this passage of Scripture, it doesn't mean you get kicked out of this church, and it doesn't mean you have to leave this church. But here's why it's so important. What churches dis- define and way they, they understand these passages of Scripture about gender roles does determine a lot of times where you decide to go to church. And it does determine a lot of times what you decide to teach in your home and among your family. So it is important. It's just not essential for your salvation. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It's still important. Verse 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. I don't think that that means exactly how it sounds. And I'll give you a reason why. If you read something out of context in Scripture, and what I mean by that, if you just take one verse out of Scripture and you read it, it may not mean exactly how it sounds. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you don't hate your mother and father, then you can't be my follower. If you take that one passage of Scripture out of the context of what it's written in, and what I mean by context is in the paragraph it's written in, in the chapter it's written in, in the book it's written in, and in the Bible, the the Testament it's written in, and in the entirety of the Bible. We have to take things in context. If you take that passage of scripture, Jesus says you must hate your mother and father or you can't be my follower, out of context, it will seem like Jesus is saying you must despise, hate, and want harm to come to your mother and father. But in context, what it means is you have to love me, Jesus Christ, more than you love your mother and father. Okay, that makes sense. In this passage where it says, let me read it again, I I don't quite have this down. Women should remain silent in churches. It it cannot mean, unless there's a contradiction in Scripture, I don't think there is. It cannot mean women are never allowed to speak in church. Let me tell you why. A couple of chapters earlier in this same book, so let's read it in context. Paul talks about women Praying and prophesying in the gathering of believers. So it can't mean women never speak. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 5. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonored his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. Now, that's a whole nother sermon, but what I want to point out to you is Paul, in chapter 11 of this same chapter, talks about women and men praying and prophesying in the gathered believer uh, when, when the church gathers. So he can't mean women are never allowed to speak because he just talked about instructions on how they're allowed to speak in church, specifically praying and prophesying. So now, if, if it doesn't mean they can't be silent, is there another way to look at this passage of Scripture? I think there is. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, the same word for silence is used just a paragraph earlier, talking about instruction. Verse 27 of chapter 14, if someone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. That's the same word used in verse 34. I don't know why the NIV decides to interpret one, keep quiet, and the other one, be silent. It's the same word used in the same way. I think what Paul is saying is that there is an ordered structure that we must do worship in If you have someone speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter, the person who's speaking in tongues should remain silent. It is a limited temporary time where that person doesn't speak because it will disrupt the order of the worship service. Okay, this makes sense. Verse 34, 
women should remain silent, it's talking about a limited, temporary moment where women should not speak. Okay, we're, get, we're, starting, to get, we're starting to get to it. It's used in the same way. I think what this is referring to is in interpretation of prophecy. So I'll read it in context. First he says, if anyone speaks in tongues, two or three should speak. If there's no interpreter, that person should be silent in the church. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak in the gathering. The others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop For you can all prophesy in turn that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all congregations of the Lord. Women should remain silent in churches. And I'm adding parenthetically. I think this is what it means. I'm adding a paraphrase here. In regard to interpretation of the prophecy spoken. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something... The prophecy is being spoken. They should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church in regard to prophecies, interpreting prophecies. Uh, Let me tell you why I I think that's the correct interpretation. Uh, Paul is setting up the order of worship. He's setting up where people are temporary silent. He says, you're in control of your spirit. You're in control of your tongue. You're in control whether you speak or not. Let's keep an orderly worship. If people speak in tongues, there should be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, that person shouldn't speak in tongues. They're not overwhelmed by the Spirit. If you ever hear a church where they speak in tongues and they say, well, I was just overcome by the Spirit, I had to stand up and just shout gook," that is not how he describes the Holy, the Holy Spirit working. If there's a prophet in the house, and apparently in the first century gathering of believers, there were people getting revelation from the Lord, this kind of makes sense. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the apostles teaching that they would spread to every congregation. Paul, when he went in and spent a year at Corinth, he taught them what the apostles teach the church, but they still didn't have the New Testament written. They might've had a letter from Paul or two letters from Paul, but they didn't have the entire New Testament. So God was still revealing his words to the churches through prophets. I I liken it to this. We're in prayer the other day in my prayer group and somebody said, I'm really struggling in this area and I don't know what to do. And somebody else says, you know, in prayer, I just had a prompting and I feel like it's from God that you should do this. Well, that scripture says the gathering should now determine whether that prophecy is actually from God or not. That prompting is actually from God or not. Not the person who spoke it, but the group God, uh, Paul is protecting the church from people coming in and saying, I heard a word from God and you have to do this and you better follow me. It, Mormonism started that way. The prophet gave his prophecy and then he interpreted his own prophecy for people to obey. Paul says there's a protection here. The prophet gets a prompting from God and then the rest of the congregation determines whether that prophecy is from God or not. And it starts to creep over into the gender roles where God says there is one role that's reserved for men and that is the role of elder. The role of elder determines what doctrine the church believes in and if someone teaches the wrong doctrine, the elders are allowed to go to that person and say, you're teaching incorrect doctrine. If you don't stop, you're not going to be able to come to this congregation anymore. That's an elder role. The scripture says women and men are equal in value. Women and men are equal in ability. Women and men are equal in spiritual gifts. Women and men are equal in smartness. Men and women are not one is inferior or superior to the other one. But there are roles designed for women and there are roles designed for men. And that's okay because that's God designed us to be the same and yet different. The same and yet different enough to be complementary to one another. Men and women's bodies are structurally different. Generally speaking, men are stronger with upper body strength. Women are stronger in lower body strength. Generally, men have 
narrower hips and women have wider hips, generally speaking. Generally speaking, women's hair grows faster and longer and for a longer period of time than men's hair does. Because men and women are designed, they're equal in value, but they're different. There is something beautiful and extraordinary about the fact that women can give birth to babies. Women can grow another human in their body, protecting that human, give birth to that human, and feed that human with their bodies. That is incredible. That difference should be celebrated, and we should rejoice that it happens. But you know, our culture says that that difference should not be celebrated, but is disgraceful. Doesn't our culture say that? And our culture says, no, men and women are the same. There's no difference. So that's when you get a man who says he's a woman and he gets in the MMA ring with a woman fighter and he almost kills her because he is built differently than she is. And our culture tells us that is okay, but the scripture actually says that's disgraceful. Because men and women should be celebrated in the differences by design. And when it comes to the church, and when it comes to the home, there is a term that the scripture uses that we talk about that is called headship and submission. And it is not offensive, but actually beautiful. And the way it plays out in the church is there is one role that mimics the home role in the church, and that is the role of elder. And again, elders are the the plurality of elders, the group of people that are assigned by God to determine whether doctrine is being taught correctly in the church, and then they go and they say, if you don't stop speaking this, they protect like a shepherd, like sheepdogs over a flock of sheep. If a wolf comes in, the elder's job is to cut that wolf off and defend the flock. And they are the ones, really the only ones, that say what you're teaching is wrong. It is is, uh, going against the essentials for faith, or maybe it's, you know, the the essentials for our orthodoxy. You can't teach this anymore, or you can't come here. And that's an elder role. And so if someone were to receive a prompting from the Spirit, and Paul says that could be men or women, and they receive a word from God and they want to share it with the church. Now, that's not how we do our orderly worship, but that's how they were doing their orderly worship in 1 Corinthians 14. And they stand up and speak, whether it's a man or woman, the church is going to decide whether that is doctrinally true, it's from God or not, but he says that's not the role designed for women. That's a temporary moment where every woman defers to the eldership role and every man defers to the eldership role. We have lots of good teachers in our church, but not every person that's a good teacher is called to be an elder, and that's okay. And this might surprise you, but I am not an elder in our church. Now, we can debate whether that's biblical or not. But I have never been limited in my abilities or limited in my gifting just because I don't have that role. And I think for men and women, we should not limit any giftings that men and women have. We should um, use any spiritual gifts given to you, whether you're a man or woman, to build up the body of God. But that also means that there are roles specifically designed for men and women, and there's one role that is eldership. So I, I want that, to, that's what I think that's referring to. It's not referring to women being silent for all time. It's referring to women during the interpretation of a prophecy. That is an elder role. That's where there should be quietness. Just like if there's no interpreter of a tongue, that's where there should be quietness. It's the same word. Paul already said women should pray and prophesy in church. Are we following along? Does this make it, we shouldn't try to make the scripture palatable. We don't have to be God's PR man. We should just say, here's what God says, let's do it. But sometimes we need to explain a little further so we can understand it in context. 
Because there are abuses for people who take this phrase out of context. There are churches, there's not very many, there are churches that say this means women should be silent all the time, never speak, as soon as they come into the door of the church building, as soon as they get in the gathering. I don't know of any church like that. It seems like uh, that would be a ridiculous way overstatement of that passage of scripture. But you know, if you read it in context, you might get that. But there are churches that say women should have no role in the gathering. But I don't think the church says that either. Because there's lots of examples when women do have a role in the gathering. Where women prophesy, where pray, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Where Priscilla and Aquila, they teach theology to Apollos, the preacher, in Acts. And that's a woman teaching a man. There's examples of this in the scripture. So it seems to be that really the only role, gender role, that is different would be that role of elder. And there's some debate about deacon. And we might end up talking about that in a, in a couple of weeks. Okay, okay, okay. Let me give you some terms that we need to have in our mind as we go, as we, as we, as we get closer to concluding. Whew. There is this term uh, called headship that is used in Scripture. And I did, I did mention it when I read the passage out of 11, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, the head of every man is Christ. And it's talking about authority roles. The head of, of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so we're talking about degrees of authority. Christ is in a higher authority, a degree of authority over man. And then it says this, this is hard for us to hear culturally. Man is in a higher degree authority over woman. Then it goes back, it circles back. God is in a high, God the Father is in a higher degree of authority over Jesus the Son. And so it gives us examples of what that looks like. How was God the Father in a higher degree of authority over Jesus the Son? Well, Jesus says, I submit to the Father. The Father is completely trustworthy. I agree completely with the Father's plan, but I'm going to be under submission to the Father's authority so much so that I'm going to come and sacrifice myself as part of the plan. Okay, we follow along. So there is this degree of authority called headship, but I want to give some um, definitions on what this means. So when it talks about headship and talks about men over women, this is culturally uh, offensive, but it, it might be true. Number one, headship is a degree of authority. It's a higher degree of authority in the relationship. But any authority found in Scripture involves a higher degree of servanthood. In Romans chapter 15, verses 2 through 3, it says, Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Christ used his higher degree of authority for a higher responsibility of servanthood. And he never used his authority to please himself. So men... You have been given a higher degree of authority, headship in Scripture. And you must never use that headship authority to please yourself. And then, now we're going to move into relationship, husband and wife. But to please and serve and build up your wife. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Men, you have been given a higher degree of authority over your wives. And I don't think this is all women submit to all men. I think this is talking about specifically in the husband and wife relationship. Paul was dealing with a culture where it was more normal for a woman to marry a man or be in a married relationship. And so when he speaks of this, he's talking about, I think, I believe he's talking about the relationship men and women in a a marriage. Men, you are given a higher degree. And that higher degree is never to be used to please yourself, but to serve and build up your wife. 
That's what Ephesians chapter five says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. Listen to that headship working as servanthood. Love, make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word, making her radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How did Christ do that for the church? Well, Christ died for the church. Men, how do you do that for your wives in that higher degree of authority, headship over your wife? You are willing to die for them daily, not using your authority to please yourself, but using your authority to serve her and your family. In headship, it is a higher degree of authority. It involves servanthood, and it uses that authority to serve, please, and build up the person who gives them the authority. Wives, you give your husband that higher degree of authority so they, they can serve you and please you and build you up. Whoa. Steve Bradshaw back there, he said him and his wife Susie have been married, and they decided when they got married that he would make all the major decisions in their household. And he said for 52 years, he's never had to use that authority in his household. That higher authority does give a tiebreaker on decisions about protecting the family. And women give that to their husbands. And husbands are supposed to use that to serve their families. So men, if you were to evaluate your role Have you used your God-given role as a man in your family to sacrificially serve your wife, to build her up, to make her holy and blameless? And then that should play out in the home, and then it comes out in a gender role in the church. Elders are supposed to take on that role to sacrificially serve and shepherd the church so that the gathering of believers would be holy and blameless for when Jesus comes back and we're presented as mature believers. And there's also a term called submission. And this is a culturally offensive word. I don't think it was culturally offensive in Paul's day, but it is in our day. And, you know, it is in modern Western culture, but it's not in other parts of the world. You know, America and Europe, as great as they are, sometimes culturally we're getting off track. Here's what submission says. Submission is not, first of all, it's not, it is not the micromanagement of your husband over your every detail of life. Oh, you must wear this type of shoe. Oh, you have to have this type of hair. No, 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 no. It's not micromanagement. It does not mean that there is no decision or responsibility the wife has. That's not what submission means. It is not authority over the, the, the home and children. Women still have authority over the home and children even as they submit to their husbands. That's not what it means. It doesn't get rid of that. It, it doesn't mean that there's no control. A woman doesn't have any control over job or personal pursuits. It doesn't mean the woman can't work outside the home. Proverbs 31 woman uh, has a responsibility of home and a responsibility of job outside the home. And it doesn't mean there's no reasonable demands on the husband. Submission is not those things. Once you get rid of that, it's, it's not as bad a word. But there is an idea in somebody's head that any submission, and it might be in your head, but this is not a biblical idea. There, it might be an idea that any submission is an admittance of inferiority, less than or greater than. Submission does not mean less than or greater than. When Jesus submitted to God the Father, it says he's equal in authority, equal in power, equal in nature. It's not an inferior person. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were equal. They were supposed to have dominion over the earth 
and are now co-heirs with Christ. They're equal in value. Equal in smarts, equality there. But there is a submission. Submission is a woman believing and supporting that the husband has a higher degree of authority in their home. And so thus tiebreakers on decisions that protect the home are given to the husband. And if you trust God and you trust the scripture, this is, as far as I can tell, a really accurate interpretation of these passages that talk about submission. And husband is in a headship role in relationship to his wife. It's not, well, every woman submits to every man. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Although every person in the church does submit to the role of the elder. So both men and women submit to elders. In the home, the wife submits to their husband. They give that role and that higher responsibility to the husband to serve and please and take care of their family. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 22, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Does Jesus micromanage what shoes you wear? Or what you all are going to have collectively for dinner? No, he doesn't. But he is an authority over us as the church. And when a husband and wife work this out in their relationship, it reveals Christ and the church to the world. Whew, this is a lot. I think I was more stressed about teaching this than I thought I would be. But if, if we look at what Scripture teaches, and we have a good interpretation within context... It's actually a beautiful way to reveal God to the entire world, to reveal the love of Christ to the entire world. And if it's taught the right way, it does not lead to abuse, and it does not lead to a woman being inferior. If it's taught the wrong way, if anything's taught the wrong way, people are going to abuse it. But held in check by Scripture and the church, and your small group, and the prayer, this is the way God says we need to live and work out our salvation. So, what do, how do we end this up? How do we wrap this up? <sighs> Here's why uh, elders are reserved for men. and it's a, it's a picture of the home coming into the gathering. Here's a trustworthy saying. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, that's the word for elder, um, overseer, presbyter, bishop, and elder all mean the same thing. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, that's a men role, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall in the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Uh, That role for elder is is designed for men, and uh, a couple of things that we we know that is because he must be the husband of one wife, he must be a one-woman man, and he, and it keeps saying he, 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 I mean, it's, it's really clear. So here's how we wrap this up, here's how we wrap this up. Don't let your experience dictate necessarily how we interpret scripture for gender roles. If the scripture says that elder role, the main teaching role in the church should be an elder, the main pastor role should be an elder, don't let your experience dictate whether you believe that's true and trustworthy or not. So if you meet a woman who is an elder in her church congregation, or you meet an elder uh, woman pastor, 
uh, and, and that person was great to you and taught you something from scripture and moved you closer to Christ, and then you come back and say, well, man, I, I was really moved closer to Christ by that woman's teaching, so women must be allowed to be elders and preachers. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Just because you experience it doesn't mean it's the way the scripture describes it. Don't let your cultural experience tell you how to interpret the scripture, but use good hermeneutics, good uh, scripture Read it in context, read it in the context of the scripture, read it in the context of historical Christianity. Historical Christianity doesn't mean it's always right, but there's a reason maybe why it's repeated for 2,000 years, it's always been taught this way, and a reason why new things come in that say sin is okay, that disregards 2,000 years of teaching. Sometimes it's a reason because it's just wrong. But use scripture to help interpret your scripture. And then... Pursue to the best of your ability not to cross boundaries biblically. Seek to find uses, if you're a man or a woman, to use your gifting from God to build up the church. And really, the only role that is clear in Scripture that a woman can't do is the, is the consistent overseer, elder role of the church. So that means if you're a woman... You should be able to pray in our church, prophesy in our church, teach in our church, and even teach me. I love uh, Jenny Passage and Judy Clay, two women in our church who have taught me when I was wrong with my doctrine. Now, it was beautiful. Both of them, uh, one of them did it in private. They corrected me in private, praised in public. And one of them corrected me in public, but then didn't make a big issue and argue about it. She just corrected me. You know, that was a, that was a Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos moment. Now, I'm no Apollos, but Judy and Jenny were Priscilla. Well, they were just using their gifts. They're just using their knowledge. And we should promote that and use that in our church everywhere we go. And then, finally, most importantly, as we finish... If you run into passages in the Bible that you get offended by, check your heart attitude first. If God gives us scripture, and I think he does, then it should, because it's not from us, it should offend us at some points in our walk with him. Because he is right and true, but he is also trustworthy. So when you encounter passage of scripture that is a conflict with what you see, what you feel, check your heart attitude first. And I think that's where we're gonna wrap it up today with checking our heart attitude through communion. Would you take out your communion cup? Now everywhere where I encounter scripture and then I move to communion, this is what I like to do to examine myself. I think the scripture was pretty clear that it gives me a role to play as a husband. And that role is to serve and make my wife holy by washing her with the word. And when I examine myself in regard to that passage of scripture, I have failed so many times. And if you're a woman and it says submit to your husband, or submit yourself to the role to the authority of the elders in the church and you examine yourself and you find in your heart of hearts you have not done that perfectly i say we should go to christ and turn to him who did live out his life perfectly in our place and where we didn't live perfectly and where we didn't follow the rules perfectly and where we didn't obey God perfectly and where we were even mad or uncomfortable for what God has said, Jesus perfectly followed those rules in our place and then he died as a sacrifice to cover over where we failed. And I am so thankful and grateful he did that. Would you examine your own heart? Take a moment to do that. And then participate in the body of Christ, remembering what he has done for you in your place.
God, I thank you that Jesus Christ absorbed my sin in his body on the cross and he gave his body as a sacrifice for our sin. Would you participate in the bread? Take out your cup and as you examine yourself and realize that you need him to sacrifice for you and live perfectly for you. Recognize that his blood was shed for you and his blood completely covers over everywhere you failed. His blood seals you to God. And if you could imagine spiritually his blood running over completely, washing you clean, preparing you to go serve in his church with renewed energy. That's the picture I love to take as I participate in the cup. Would you participate in the cup? Jesus, thank you. God, thank you for sending Christ to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, buried three days, and then rose from the dead to prove everything you said is true. Lord, we thank you even for the hard truths in the scripture and we ask that you would empower us to live them out in a way that honors you and glorifies Jesus Christ in our homes and in our community and in our church. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have more questions about this, I will refer you to the 600 books that I looked at for uh, this passage. Uh, There is actually some great information. If you have more questions about it and you'd like to study it even further, get in the weeds even deeper, there's some other passages of scripture we can look at, but there's also um, some great information, some of it on a podcast you can listen to. A man who did actually study all 600 of those uh, books and did do about 40 hours of verbal teaching on these couple of passages in scripture. And I will gladly give that podcast to you and let you listen to it. And you can get as deep in the weeds as you wanna go. Um, It is a lot of information. But I appreciate you listening and not throwing tomatoes today and not being uh, too offended by what the scripture teaches. And I encourage you to go out and live this out. Be the church to the best of your abilities. God bless you and have a good morning. We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.